Well, good morning again, everyone. One uh, housekeeping item before I begin. If uh, you want to write this name down on your notes, I would highly encourage you to do so. It's the name Dr. Gary, G-A-R-Y, Burge, B-U-R-G-H. Um, I want to give some credit to uh, Gary Burge. He is a New Testament scholar and professor at Wheaton University, or Wheaton College, I guess, and he is a preeminent evangelical scholar. And I'm very thankful for men and women like Dr. Burge because they dedicate their lives to studying and analyzing and helping us understand the context of the scriptures that we study. They give us historical background. They give us an understanding of the world that was taking place in the scriptures that we're reading. And these are all very critical pieces to helping us understand the Easter messages that we are going to be studying today. So if you were to Google his name, uh, you would come across his website, and he has some wonderful resources that can help all of us just better understand the history and the context behind these New Testament messages and the, and the New Testament verses uh, that we're studying. And as we think about that, we simply know this, that Easter will soon be upon us. We are entering sacred and holy time. And two weeks from this morning, it will be the beginning of Holy Week, the week that's going to lead up to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And we need to focus on two things as we prepare in these weeks ahead for that Easter celebration. Number one, we keep first and foremost in our minds that Jesus Christ rose. He rose from the grave. He died for our sins and he rose from the tomb to conquer death. And secondly, because Christ rose from the tomb, all followers of him have the promise that we too will be with him in all of his glory when we take our last breath here on this earth. You see, that's, that's the good news. That's the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose for our eternity if we follow him. So if you've had a rough week this week and you're here to recharge and refocus your energy and your thoughts, or maybe you've had a great week and you're just ready to go off into another great week, I want you to keep this truth in your mind as you listen to this message this morning and as you leave here today. The key verse I want you to focus on comes from John 15. It's where Jesus tells his disciples who are surrounding him, as he's preparing to face the cross, he says, now remain in my love. Remain. That's a key word. We're going to be really honing in on that word week after week through Easter. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. When we're facing challenges, when we're facing struggles, when we're facing trials, our default button goes back to, I'm going to remain in Christ. I'm going to re remain in his promises. I'm going to remain rooted to him. So next week, Mike Cahill is going to pick up on this theme as he narrows in on the vine and branches verses. I'm not going to touch those. I'm going to touch on some verses later on in the chapter. But before we do that, I want to give some context to some events that are going to lead up to 
this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And we're going to go right to Palm Sunday, and we're going to start in Mark 11, if you have your Bibles with you. I don't have this in your notes, but Mark 11 is where I would like to begin. And if you can kind of picture this in the next three weeks of teaching, we want to bookend Palm Sunday with Resurrection Sunday. And we want to look at especially a couple of key events that are going to be part of Jesus' actions and Jesus' words. They're going to lead to his death on the cross and his resurrection. So I want to look at Palm Sunday for a second, and I want to take a look at this question. What is it that Jesus is going to accomplish in these first couple of days of Holy Week? And here's some context and background to maybe help us understand the time and the place at which this is happening. See, Jesus has traveled south from Galilee to Bethany. Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. It's probably about a 30-minute walk. So walking at a brisk pace, it's probably from here to just about the interstate, um, if you're moving fairly quickly. And so that gives you an idea of where he is in relation to Jerusalem, where he's going to be going back and forth throughout this week. And he's going to be staying in Bethany, and this would make sense, because many of his friends, including Mary and Martha, are there. And many of their extended family of Mary and Martha, they're there. And so there is a gathering of friends for Jesus to be with. And as we think of the morning of Palm Sunday, Jesus is going to crest the Mount of Olives, and he's going into Jerusalem. And this is the season of Passover. And to give you more context to the scene and what's going on and the sounds and the sights that are happening, he's going there with pilgrims from Galilee. And these are pilgrims. Many of these Galileans know who Jesus is already. And so they're cheering him on. They're excited to see him because he's already been seen by many, many people. And if you're ever wondering what the significance of the palms are, palms were a huge symbol of the time. There's actual coinage that archaeologists have found where you find coins that have palms on them. It was the national life of Israel. And it's important for us to understand all of this because in the midst of all of this glory and in the midst of all of this excitement, Jesus is going to make an entry. And I want to pick that up in Mark 11, verse 4. Now, when you hear the word colt, it's referring to a donkey. It's incredibly important for us to understand that. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them to. He sent them up to do this, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over the colt, over this donkey, Jesus rides in on it. He sits on it. He rides in on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut from the fields. Those who went and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he comes in with this triumphal entry on this donkey. He looks around the landscape, and then he goes back to Bethany. What is going on here? And what is significant about it? And why is that important to us? We need to understand this about Roman times. 
And Jerusalem is in a Roman-occupied territory at this time. A, a triumphal entry was significant in this time because typically Roman soldiers would leave. They would go out and fight battles. They would go out for conquests. And when they were victorious, they would send people ahead to alert their city they were coming home. And you can imagine, just like a triumphal entry of a team that just won the Super Bowl and they're coming back to their city, people are going to line the streets. And leading the charge of that triumphal entry is going to be that general whose men just conquered And he's going to be with a flowing robe, with the most beautiful chariot, with horses that are bespeckled with all the gold and all of the trimmings. And they're going to be coming back. And behind them is going to be all the treasure they bring, the army that they took, and probably slaves that they conquered. And this is all about the general. This triumphal entry is all about the success and the glory of this winning general. And they're going to give him all the pomp and circumstance that they can. And you can imagine in Roman times, a general who comes back to this setting is probably going to set him up for some kind of power in government because he's conquered and he's won. Can you imagine the ego on some of these guys as they're coming back? Now, I want you to contrast this to a triumphal entry of our Lord and Savior. How does Jesus enter Jerusalem? He comes quietly on a donkey. He enters his city, and his triumphal entry is on a donkey. Jesus does something very unexpected in this scene. He arrives on this donkey, and he comes humbly. And you see, these accounts of how Jesus acts and what Jesus does and what he says, they are so important because this is written for you, and it's written for me. The glory of Jesus is found in his humility. Leadership, according to Jesus, is seen through servanthood. You see, our Lord and Savior comes to this great city where everyone was expecting a triumphal entry like the ones they'd seen in generals past, and Jesus comes on a donkey. I think that's incredibly important for us in the context of our lives, in the context of when we follow what that looks like, and what that means. So the next day, Jesus comes back. And if you read a little further down into Mark 11, we have an interesting scene that takes place with Jesus and a fig tree. If you take a look at verse 12, this is what happens. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, we're going back to Jerusalem again, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one eat fruit from you again. His disciples heard him say this, and when they go back, they find the tree is withering and dying. Now, is Jesus having a bad day? (laughs) I I, I think of, uh, I'm going to take a quick detour here. I have a friend, Ryan, who's a big Iowa Hawkeye fan, and several years ago, he was so upset about an Iowa loss, that he took an axe, he went out to the grove behind their house, and he just chopped down a tree. He just he chopped down a tree. He was so mad about an Iowa Hawkeye game, he chopped down a tree. And I remember his wife saying to me shortly after that, she goes, Jeff, I don't think that's normal behavior. But he's a big Hawkeye fan. Now, I really worry about their grove after the last three or four seasons if they have any trees left. But 
he's, <laughs> Jesus is not angry here, though. There's another reason. He's not mad at the tree. He's proving a point as if he is a prophet himself. Because notice what happens next. There is an exact, and there's no mistaking here. There is no way to miss this point. The connection between the fig tree and the temple that he's entering right after the stop at the tree. You see, fig trees at this time, and fig trees even now, they come out in the early spring. They start to form fruit by early spring. So we know at Passover time, these trees are forming fruit. And from a distance, this tree looks amazing. It looks like it's got all kinds of things to eat. But when you have closer inspection of this fig tree in the spring, you'll find that the fruit it's already produced is still very hard. It's inedible. You can't get anything from it. Its looks are deceiving. It's not going to be until fall when that fruit is going to form and it's going to be delicious. But at this time, its looks are deceiving. And that's important because look what happens next. After this fig tree moment, Jesus reaches Jerusalem. And if you look in in verse 15, Jesus entered the temple courts. And immediately he begins driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the table of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And it's on the way back from the temple that the disciples who followed him in see the fig tree that's withering. So what's the connection between a fig tree and a temple? The connection is this. The temple that Jesus came across was, the exactly, was exactly like the fig tree that he curses. The temple from the outside is being restored. It looks beautiful. It looks amazing. It is, it is majestic in how it is viewed. But when you get to the inside, it's producing no fruit. Here's what we know about the temple at the time when Jesus enters it. It is a commercial enterprise. Men there, religious leaders, are selling and taking animals for sacrifice. And people are paying an annual tax to the temple. And here's the problem. If I'm from Galilee and I bring my coins to pay the tax, the money changers at the table are saying, your coin's not pure enough. You can trade it in for some of our coins and we'll give you back the difference. Well, who do you suppose is going to win? It's a commercial enterprise. And people are profiting from the temple. They're profiting in a place where they are supposed to be worshiping God. And Jesus sees this. He's furious, and this is what brings him to the point of anger where he starts tearing apart the place, turning over the money tables. He's making a point, and the point is this. God's house is and always will be and must always be a house of prayer and a house of worship, period. Your faith is not a commercial enterprise. You see the connection? There's also something interesting that we learn about this temple. It actually had a dividing wall. And inside this dividing wall, there was a a, a wording on it that simply says this. If you were a Gentile, and it was a note to the Gentiles, if you're a Gentile, you shall not go past this wall. 
You have no access to the inter-sanctums of this temple. And Jesus is furious about this as well. Because Jesus came for all nations. Jesus came for those Gentiles that were being excluded from parts of the temple. Jesus came for everyone. You see, religion to these authorities had become their business. It was their engine for economic growth. And Jesus says, no way. This is a house of God. And this is a house of prayer to God. This is a house of worship. And here are the two takeaways that we take from this scene. Whenever the church lives for its own benefit, Jesus becomes angry. And yes, Jesus is capable of anger, of righteous anger. And just as importantly, whenever the church excludes anyone, any race, any nationality, whenever we turn our backs on anyone, Jesus becomes angry because he died for all of us. And we need to think about that as followers of him. So why are these moments important? And what do they tell us about Jesus? And more importantly, what do they tell us about our relationship to him? I go back to this thought. Leadership begins with a humility that leads to servanthood. (laughs) Our following Jesus means our hearts are humbled. Humbled hearts means that we lead with the idea of servanthood. And for men and women, husbands and wives, this means that in our relationships, we need to be outdoing each other in trying to serve one another. That's what it looks like. That's the beauty. Paul talks about it. Wives submitting to your husbands just as Christ loves you like he loves the church. We are outdoing each other to love and serve each other. If you are a kid still living in a home where someone is paying all the bills, it means that you're doing everything you can to serve the people who are paying those bills. Your parents, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, you Your role as a kid, as a Christ-following kid, is to honor and serve those who lead you. It's all about servanthood. It's all about humility. Jesus comes in on a donkey. That's the image we take when we think of our relationships to those around us. It means that when we're in our workplaces, it means that we are treating each other with a level of humility and respect and care just like Jesus would. And from the fig tree, we learn this. We must bear the fruit that we appear to have. From the outside in, we we may all look like that fig tree from afar, but we have to examine what's inside of ourselves to know if we're actually producing fruit. See, God's house is a temple. It's a house of prayer It's a house of worship. And I think this is significant as well. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he compares our very selves to the churches that we build. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So the expectations that Jesus has for the temple, the expectations are the same for you and me, both individually and when we gather corporately inside this temple. This is a house of prayer, it's a house of worship, and it should be a house that has an open hand to any single person 
who we can bring here. We have to have that kind of heart. We have to have that kind of influence. We've got to have that kind of passion for reaching people who need the gospel. And Jesus teaches this in the very first two days of Holy Week. Now, in a couple weeks, I'm going to spend some more time on the Thursday, Friday through Sunday time. Some of the historical significance around that. But I want to leave you with those two today as we go into John 15 verse 7 right now. Let's go to John now because the other piece of this teaching in the next three weeks is going to be centered around the various chapters in John where Jesus is having his final words with his disciples. And so we can fast forward a little bit into the week. And Jesus has gathered. They've had their Passover meal. And there is a scene and a setting now in these chapters where Jesus is sort of giving the final instructions. He knows what's ahead. And so just as he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to you and me. He's talking to every one of us who are following him. And this is the instructions. These are some of the first commands that he gives. In verse 7, Jesus says this, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's a great promise to have. Now that doesn't mean that we're talking material possessions here. Um, He's not going to provide a new car or this or that. What he's saying is, I'm going to walk through you with everything, through everything you're going to walk through. You remain in me, and I'm right here with you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. What a great verse that is. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. We know what's being foreshadowed here, don't we? You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. He's saying as you're growing in your faith, I don't have to treat you like unequals. You understand this now. And I'm going to speak to you as if you do. Instead, I have called you friends. He calls us friends when we follow. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So here's the key points that I want to make. Here is our so what moment today, what this means for you and me. When we are called to remain in Jesus, there are two things that we have to accept. We have to accept, number one, the fact that we have to trust this is true. We have to trust. And with that trust comes something that is very, very difficult for us to do, and that is to surrender. Is it really hard for us sometimes to surrender control of things? You better believe it. You think about it, and and here's the exercise I want to leave you with. 
We're going to have a special song here in a second that I picked out for a personal reason, but I'll get to that in a moment. My challenge for you and the challenge that I've I've given myself this week is to start examining what are the things that I sometimes struggle to trust and what are the things that I sometimes struggle to surrender because I think if you answer those two questions, you probably have a pretty good idea of what it is that actually burdens you every single day. We're not designed to walk through life with stress. Now, we're going to have some stress. Don't get me wrong. We're going to have challenges, and we're going to have some unbelievable valleys to walk through. But we are not meant to walk through this world day by day in worry. And so many times we worry about the very things that we can't control. See if this sounds familiar to any of you. Do you ever worry about money or possessions? Do you ever worry about the living that you're making? Do you ever worry about your status, about your place in your workplace, about your place in the community, about your place in the friendships that you have? Do you ever worry about that for your kids or for your grandkids? Do you ever worry about relationships that you have, about fitting in? Do you ever have worries about any of those things? What happens when we put our trust in these things, whether it be money or our work or the status that we have? the possessions that we gain or the relationships that we build is that they are fleeting. (laughs) They're fleeting. And the Bible tells us this. So what if we did this instead? What if we looked at our work as our ministry? We go to work tomorrow, and the first thing I'm going to do is use my work to bless those around me. What does that look like when that's our mindset? If that means that you're in a life stage where you're a stay-at-home mom, if that means you're in a life stage where you're out in the workplace, or if you're in a life stage where you're retired and you're volunteering, what if every day, whatever work that was in front of you, you said, this is going to be my ministry today? Because I'm going to use it in my interactions with people to bless them and love them and show them the God that I follow. What does that look like when that changes our whole mindset of work? What if we saw our possessions Not as things that we seek after, but as gifts from God. And because God gives us these gifts, we're compelled to give a portion back to him willingly with an open hand. Does that change the burdens that we carry? And what happens when we don't measure our relationships by the status of the relationships or the status of the people who we're friends with, but what happens if we view relationships as our influence over others? our ability to care for others. How much different would my life, your life, our lives look? And how much more fruit would we be able to produce with that mindset? When we think of our place in this world, we think of a Savior who made a triumphal entry on a donkey the week before he went to the cross. And when we place more value on that, and when we place more value on people who we know rather than our witness to the world, I want us to think about a Savior who blasted a fig tree and overturned money tables, who was angered at a temple whose heart was not big enough to include all people. We're going to face struggles We're going to face pains, and we're going to face trials in this life. And Jesus knew that suffering because he took it to the cross. And his disciples who followed after that 
knew plenty of suffering as well. We studied about many of them when we went through the book of Acts. But here's what I want to leave you with. We cling to the promise that Jesus gave his disciples in that upper room shortly before going to the cross. He says in those times of of trial, in those times of doubt, in those times of struggle, he says, remain in me. If you've got something on your plate you're looking ahead to this week, I want you to hold on to that truth. Remain in me. Remain in me. Remain in me. And if things are clicking along right now, inevitably something else is going to come and trip us up. Remain in me. Remain in me. Remain in me. Through all of the hurts, through all of the worries and frustrations, Jesus says to his disciples, remain in me. And you will see the blessings from every circumstance that you're going to face. So here's how I want to leave us today. Many, many years ago, there was a, a Christian songwriter by the name of Rich Mullins. You, you might have heard of him. He, he wrote a beautiful song. Um, it has been remade by a, a band called Big Daddy Weave. And this song was particularly emotional for me because a while ago, when sort of overwhelmed with lots of things flying at me, this song came on, and this version of it was the first time that I heard it. And what I think is beautiful about those emotionally intense worship experiences, and we've all had them, and and I would encourage you to clear your mind and your heart to try to have that right now. What's beautiful about these experiences is they are both in the moment you're breaking and in the moment you're healing all at the same time. I think that's worship. (laughs) It's that moment where our brokenness meets the holiness of a perfect Savior. And we literally, as this song says, we fall to our knees. So here's what I'm going to encourage us all to do for about four minutes here as this song plays. It's going to play, and I want you just to go through your mind the things that are burdening you right now, the things you're struggling with right now, the things that you need to take to God in prayer. And I want you to remember these words. When we go to him in prayer, he promises, remain in me. Keep my commands, and I'm with you always. I'm going to give you a few moments as this plays. Sometimes my life just don't make sense at all. When the mountains look so big And my faith just seems so small So hold me, Jesus Cause I'm shaking like a leaf You have been king of my glory Won't you be my prince of peace? So hot inside my soul I swear there must be blisters on my heart So hold me, Jesus Cause I'm shaking like a leaf You have been king of my glory Won't you be my prince of peace? So when that don't come natural 
I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want And to take what you give that I need And I've beat my head against so many Salvation Army Band is playing this hymn And your grace rings out so deep It makes my resistance seem so thin So hold me Jesus Cause I'm shaking like a leaf You have been king of my glory Won't you be my prince of peace So Shaking like a leaf You have been king of my glory Won't you be my prince of peace Come and be my prince of peace Oh Lord Hold me Jesus Cause I'm shaking like a leaf talked about this last week when we're shaking like a leaf and that's such a powerful image um, to me I've been there um, we've all been there and chances are there's a point in our life world that we'll be there again I, I do know this many times in those circumstances I shake like a leaf because like we talked about last week my brokenness is here and God's holiness is up here and I come to the end of myself down here <laughs> And, I, and I'm shaking because I'm doing everything I can myself and I'm forgetting that what bridges my brokenness with his holiness isn't anything I'm going to say or do. It's that cross right there. It's the Easter message that we're preparing for. Jesus covers those things. We are commanded in all of our trials, in all of our struggles, remain in him.